Hello, it's Monday 13th of December. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will be rewinding back through the past 12 months, the good, the bad and the ugly. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show's review of 2021. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So another year goes by, and how will history judge 2021? Mostly unfavorably, we'd probably imagine. We enter the holiday season confronting some of the similar complex uncertainties as 12 months ago, after shards of light briefly flickered back in November. So for today's review of 2021 show, Hannah and I have created a list of 10 events and developments that will always remind us of this year 2021, plus five more that bubble just under our main list. So Hannah, this time last year, 17th of December actually, our review of 2020 show described it as 12 months that no one will ever forget. What will we say about 2021? Well, it's like Groundhog Day, isn't it? We can say exactly the same um, for 2021. And it's, it's funny, you know, in this, this weekly report that I pulled together, um, I always delete out old updates. And I was going back through Singapore and I noticed, I think January 2021 was Singapore blocks countries from South Africa from entering the country. I said, oh, that rings a bell. It's just the same thing, isn't it? We just see the same news over and over and over again, reopening, closing, reopening and closing. And gosh, I really hope 2022 is better. It has to be, right? Let's hope so. Yeah, I mean, I wrote in my newsletter this this week that the only way I can describe, the only word I can use to describe this year is grueling because it has been a tough, tough year. You know, we did turn the corner into 2021 with this hope about vaccinations, with this hope that it couldn't be any worse than 2020. And it probably has been at least as bad, probably at worst at some points. We across the uh, across the region, we've had long periods of lockdown. We'll come to, to the reasons for that. But it's been a tough, tough year. Looking forward to 2022. Well, it is the year of the tiger. That is a, a, an ambitious and adventurous year. So let's hope there is a, there's some degree of adventure on the horizon. But at the moment, turning into 2022, uh, yeah, it looks very, very similar to 12 months ago. It does. So shall we have a look at our, our top 10 list? And um, at number one, I'm, I'm sure our listeners have guessed it. Um, I'll give you a few seconds to guess. What do you think it could be? is the Delta variant. Of course, I think that is the the main event, if it was an event, we could call it that, of, of 2021 that has impacted the, the tourism industry in this region beyond belief, really, is this Delta variant. And, you know, as, as you and I have discussed before, Gary, things were doing okay. The region had a pretty good handle, for the most part, on handling um, COVID-19, And along came the Delta variant and upended everything that countries knew about how to handle the virus and their plans for vaccination, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And it emanated from India. So if we go back to, well, several months ago, from late February onwards, uh, the world watched in horror, really, as India suffered at the hands of COVID-19. The infection wave, the daily infection wave peaked at 414,000 daily cases on the 14th of May. And as I said, you know, the, the Delta variant was first identified in India and it spread very quickly worldwide, but it spread particularly across our region here in Southeast Asia. It became the world's most deadly mutation. It, it, it really took governments, I wouldn't say by surprise, but it certainly scared everybody in the region. And as we, you know, we were at the midpoint of the year, Hannah, we were case counting 
every week, really. And when we go back to July, the 10 nations of ASEAN surpassed 1 million active daily cases for the first time. Indonesia peaked at around 57,000 daily cases in July. So if we go back to that period, July and August, most of the region was in lockdown. Travel looked a long, long way away. And even into uh, mid-July, there were 1.164 million daily active cases in the region. Now, that, that went right, right down across the, the next months. At the, at the beginning of December, there were just 417,000 daily cases. But unfortunately, that started to rise again. Yesterday, 470,000 daily cases. So we are back to this case counting. Uh, government priorities are, again, looking at the, the spread of the virus rather than as, as we were hoping that vaccination was going to contain it and we'd move, be moving forward. But yeah, the Delta variant, definitely the biggest story of the year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and linked to that um, has to be our second one, really. So this is airlines failing. Um, and we haven't really seen massive collapses of airlines. You know, they, they haven't gone out of existence, but certainly many are going through um, rehabilitation processes now. And obviously a lot of this is down to the fact that international routes uh, have not really been operating because borders here are still pretty closed, so they can't really make money from that. And, you know, most of this year, domestic travel has not been possible either, or if it has been possible, uh, appetite has been somewhat um, dampened. So again, airlines can't really make money um, from domestic routes either. Um, So we have seen airlines like Thai Airways go through rehabilitation process. I think Garuda is just entering um, that now. Air Asia X has, and that one is really quite controversial in Malaysia, um, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, it is. I mean, I guess we have to kind of separate out. I mean, Air Asia is a slightly different case to Garuda, Thai, and Philippine Airways. Now, those are, are big legacy carriers. Most of them are largely, or not wholly, government owned. Um, they're the flag carriers, and they did carry with them a lot of debt baggage and a lot of mismanagement into the pandemic. AirAsia AirAsia X didn't have that. It wasn't particularly profitable. But, you know, it did come into the the pandemic with a big flight network and all of that network just suddenly closed down. But yet it is hugely controversial here simply because of the nature of the the turnaround and the the minute fraction that creditors are being paid uh, on their loans or or on their outstanding debts in order to keep AirAsia X uh, solvent. Uh, we'll see how that goes into the new year, because at the moment, you know, even though it's, it's, it seems to have reached agreement with its creditors, um, those routes still aren't open again yet. So, you know, it, it's unable to really make the revenue that it needs. Absolutely. Moving on to number three, and that is the fact that Southeast Asia has gone. And this is pretty impressive, I think, actually, um, from the beginning of the year to one of the regions that was really had barely started its vaccination drive in many, many countries. Even in the middle of the year, this is why Delta variant had such an impact on the region was because the region was still not very highly vaccinated. So it's gone from one of the least vaccinated um, to some countries in the region are the most vaccinated in the world. So you've got countries like Cambodia, like Singapore, um, even Malaysia, which have a really, really high vaccination rate now. And not only that, uh, countries have now gone from beyond scrambling around for vaccines to looking at booster doses. And Cambodia is even looking at administering a fourth booster dose in 2022, let alone a third booster dose. They're already well on the way with that, but they're looking at a fourth one. Indonesia just crossed the 100 million adults fully vaccinated in the country, which is super impressive. 
isn't it? It's a, It's been a real logistical operation to manage to get that many people vaccinated. And we, we know it's a country that they are not even at 50% yet of their population. But the fact that they have managed to get shots into the arms of 100 million people at least twice, I think it, it is really testament to, to to each country kind of pulling together and rolling out this vaccination drive, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it was a, confused, a pretty confused picture if we go back to about February when Singapore and I think Indonesia were the first that really um, started to move on vaccinations. But it was, like you said, it was supply. The, the supplies were very, very patchy in those early months. Uh, even where countries were trying to roll out their vaccination programs, they didn't have the supplies. Malaysia is a good case and example. They tried quite hard to, to move the vaccination process pretty quickly, but at the beginning, the supplies simply weren't there. Once the supplies started to come in through Malaysia, I would say, is one of the most impressive because it does have a, a mid-sized population. It's about 33 million people. You know, so that's nowhere near Indonesia, which has about 275 million Vietnam is nearly 100 million, Philippines is more than 100 million. So those are the big populations. And those were always going to be the ones that were going to be much, much slower simply because of the logistical issues there. On the lower end of the case, obviously, Singapore has a very, very small population. Cambodia doesn't have a particularly big population. So it was inevitable those three, those two would, would lead the race. But I think Malaysia's from a standing start done pretty well. But the, the issue now is, as we're going through this, you know, this booster shot campaign that we're starting to see around the world. Well, Singapore can roll that out pretty quickly. Cambodia has, and, and as you said, is, is looking at forced shots. Malaysia's pushing hard on, on, on booster shots. It's vaccinated some of the, the junior population as well. When you've got to turn around and start again in countries like Vietnam, Philippines, and Indonesia, and start revaccinating on a third booster shot, that's going to take a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, it comes back to this whole issue of is it ethical? I mean, in Indonesia, like you said, huge, huge population. Is it ethical to start rolling out booster doses when you still haven't even fully vaccinated your whole population? Right. So you've got all of these issues, particularly with these larger countries that like you say that that are inevitably going to complicate things. Yeah. And I think you also have a new wave of hesitancy as well. I mean, we did see that particularly in Malaysia at the start of the, the rollout. There was huge hesitancy here. That really kind of was eased away we move towards, I wouldn't say we have a, a vaccine mandate here, but you, you know, you really can't do a great deal unless you're vaccinated. It's very difficult to get into bars, restaurants, e even offices, unless you show your vaccinated status. So moving into another era, a, another rollout of that, particularly when people are concerned that the vaccines they had before may have a much lower immunity. So particularly the Chinese vaccines, uh, we're reading reports at the moment, the AstraZeneca doesn't really uh, give you too much immunity against Omicron. So you're probably going to have to go to one of the mRNA vaccines. And, you know, there is a lot of concern, I think, across Asia about the mRNA vaccines. So, yeah, it's, 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 we're certainly entering a, a new level of complexity on vaccinations. Um, and it's going to be a numbers game again, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to number four, this has to be about domestic travel, doesn't it? I mean, in the fact that as we, we've already alluded to earlier, the fact that it has reopened the beginning of this year, it was doing really well. The numbers were getting really strong. Of course, there was a big spike after all of these people were been moving around, so it was closed. Now it was starting to reopen again, you know, say about Q4, when we started to really see things starting to pick up again. But this stop, start, stop, start does not help um, local tourism stakeholders 
with their operations. They, they just don't know which way they're coming, basically. And often governments have announced policies very last minute, very little notice um, for them to be able to adapt and really maximise um, reopening as well. Yeah, there's that. And it hasn't helped uh, travellers themselves either. I mean, confusion about where where and when you can travel in some countries of the region, as we've noted beforehand, I know there are different uh, regulations in different parts of countries, particularly the bigger ones like Philippines, for example. So it's been quite difficult. It's real patchwork, even in, in the domestic travel sphere. Uh, you know, we've we've said several times on the podcast here for in Malaysia for eight months, we weren't able to travel domestically eight months. You know, that's a long, long time. And that really starts to erode confidence. Fortunately, we've, we've seen that come back in Malaysia, domestic travel, um, particularly up to places like Langkawi and, and Penang seems to be going quite strong. Uh, and, you know, that that confidence may pertain through the next few months, given the fact that there probably won't be any international travelers coming in. Uh, local uh, travelers have the place to themselves, really. So, But it does mean that the travel industry has to work much, much harder to encourage people to, to travel and travel again. We'll probably have to see more incentivization, more, more discounting in order to, to make that happen. Yeah, so it is, it's, a, it's a difficult cycle when you have these closed, closed loops within countries. But fortunately, at the moment, in most countries, we are seeing domestic travel, which, you know, if we go back three or four months, uh, that wasn't even on the agenda, was it? No, exactly. So I think that that has given at least a boost to tourism at the end of 2021. And about time, I think probably most most tourism stakeholders listening um, to this podcast are probably saying about time. We've gone for long enough this year with zero revenue. We needed to start making revenue at least at some point. It's been tough. I guess the other point on that as well is it, it tends to favour the bigger countries because there's more to explore. But you look at countries like Singapore, perhaps even Brunei, you know, it's quite difficult to, to regenerate more domestic travel. I mean, Singapore, it's, it's near impossible, even though um, there has been some innovation, hasn't there, in, in, in some of the experiences that they're offering to people. Yeah, I mean, they, they have had really innovative kind of hotel staycations. You can bring your pet along. I think they've had Squid Game themed ones. Um, really very high levels of innovation for local tours as well, where you can really discover the kind of Singaporean heritage that are geared solely towards the local market, not towards the international market anymore. So that's been really refreshing to see. Um, But you look at Singapore and even domestically, demand has not really been there. So last year, the Singapore government launched the Singapore Rediscovers vouchers, giving 100 Singapore dollars um, to every Singaporean adult. Um, it was in the news last week that I think less than half of these have actually been used um, and they've had to extend the validity date. Again, they need to be booked by the end of this year for travel for next year. So even that, even the government giving away money, essentially, for you to go on on a tour or book a hotel, and it's still not really come off. I think that really demonstrates the the difficulty of domestic travel in such a small country. Totally agree. So moving on to number five. Number five is Bali's reopening, or did it reopen? It's a, it's a, it's a kind of question here. There was, a, there was a will it, won't it for many months before. It was almost like the, the Phuket sandbox. You know, we had so much prevarication. We had so much flip-flopping. And then it was supposed to reopen to international travelers. I think it was, what, the 14th of October. So that's two months ago right now. But nothing has happened. No, exactly. I remember, yeah, in the middle of the year, we were having, we had a podcast, didn't we? We had the Phuket Hotels Association and the Bali Hotels Association and a really interesting conversation. Um, Go back to that one. And it really seemed it was this competition. Who was going to open first? And actually, my money was on Bali. 
I, I think if you go back through the podcast, I was like, no, Bali's going to be the one to reopen, not Thailand. Bali's going to do better. Thailand's got all of these hoops you've got to jump through. And like you said, Gary, you know, Bali has ostensibly reopened um, to international markets, limited ones, but there are no direct flights there internationally. And therefore, no one can arrive. It's almost a kind of lesson on how not to do it. And like you say, you know, perhaps the government has its its reasons for doing that. But yeah, if you're a, if you're a Bali hotel, you must be feeling very frustrated right now. I think. Yeah, I mean, the, the domestic travel scene to Bali obviously is very very strong. Indonesian travel to Bali has always been so important, and that seems to be coming back. The you know, numbers are quite good, but Bali is really really suffering. You can see that. And there's no real sign that it's actually pushing for for airlines to come back. It's again, it's it's raised its quarantine again, which it reduced down to three days. That went back up to seven days, and now ten days. You know, Bali will be hosting the G20 summit next year, um, but you can't imagine that it would stay closed for all that period. Or maybe it would. I mean, I don't know. It's quite hard to see at the moment. Um, there seems to be a lot of political positioning in Indonesia right now. There's an election. Uh, what in two years' time, and, and Jokowi Wadodo will obviously um, will leave the presidency. So there's a lot of uh, positioning and, and people taking positions in tourism. I guess is is going to be in the crosshairs of that over the next two years. But yeah, it's it's a very uncertain situation for Bali right now. I mean, I guess one thing that you reported yesterday, Hannah, is that Indonesia has actually um, removed this uh, these new restrictions it was going to place on domestic travel over the holiday season. Um, so that should unleash some domestic demand for Bali. But yeah, it's, it's a very unclear picture. I would say in the region right now, it's one of those that, well, probably the hardest to read. Yeah, absolutely. It, it seemed easier to read earlier in the year. Like I said, we were, we were very confident that we, we thought it would open and it just has fizzled out um, for reasons kind of unknown. Um, so yeah, big, big question mark, big gray area. What is going to happen in Bali uh, in, in early 2022? I honestly don't know. Yeah, and particularly particularly curious, I would say, Hannah, given the fact that Australia has, has reopened its outbound market, not not totally, but it has started to reopen its outbound market. And you know, Bali is, is right there; it's right on the doorstep. It's the huge market for Bali, but it's it's turning visitors away and airlines away right now. Yeah, I mean, and even more interesting that Thai Airways have just opened up uh, a direct Sydney to Phuket flight. This is the first ever direct to Phuket and they're looking to open up more connections um, between Thailand and Australia as well in 2022. So clearly Thailand is, is seizing that opportunity. They see the Australian market and they're, they're going to go for it. Uh, yeah, Bali's got to get a move on if they, if they, they, they want that outbound Australian market. But perhaps they don't. Like we said, maybe there's something going on that we, we can't see right now that will all become clear. The mystery continues. So let's move on to number six. And this this is where we started to we started to get a little bit of brightness in our eyes, didn't we? Towards the second half of the year, it looked like a, re- a recovery was starting. And we actually said this back in August. We did a podcast called Did August Mark the Start of ASEAN's Travel Turnaround? And we noted that as vaccine rates were starting to increase in some countries, notably Singapore, of course, um, there was this talk between, among governments about endemicity of COVID resilience and the reopening of travel started to move up governmental agendas. And, and from there on, from September onwards, 
we started to get more positivity, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have always, well, not always, but for the last year, we've always heard this talk about the ASEAN travel corridor. Whenever there's an ASEAN meeting, they always talk about this travel corridor, which is still um, not materialised a year on and have my doubts it ever will. Um, But excitingly, like you said, we were starting to see these, um, some unilateral, mainly unilateral um, agreements between ASEAN countries. So Singapore with Brunei having the vaccinated travel lane. Um, Later, now they have opened it with Malaysia. Of course, that's the big, big one for at least, you know, where Gary and I are sat in Malaysia because the traffic between Malaysia and Singapore, um, of course, is so great normally. Economies are so interlinked. Um, So that was an exciting one. But Singapore has also added Cambodia, Thailand to its vaccinated travel lanes list as well. And because Thailand and Cambodia both allow Singaporeans in without quarantine too, we're starting to slowly see, you know, some possible... ASEAN travel corridors within that, you know, just just selected nations. It's not this open free for all, but it's getting there. Announcements like Malaysia and Indonesia are going to set one up. We're slowly, slowly crawling towards some kind of inter-ASEAN travel. Right, Gary? Yep, it did look that way. And I guess the, the, the two next points, number seven and number eight, were part of this sort of gradual reopening that started to actually move a little bit quicker. And I guess the one phrase that we've been talking about all year, which has bored everybody to tears, is the Phuket sandbox. Um, so that, that started in July. And that was, you know, as, as we know, that was Thailand's initial attempt to reopen the country via Phuket. That was on the 1st of July. Travelers could fly into Phuket, basically do a, a fairly lax quarantine in Phuket, and then you would be able to travel onwards around the country. It didn't really work. There were so many reasons. It was a little bit too complex. The procedures uh, were very restrictive and it was probably the wrong time as well. July uh, isn't really a, a great inbound time for, for Thailand. Um, but then it's, it, it shifted that, didn't it? And over the next few months, we had more prevarications, we had more flip-flopping. But eventually, on the 1st of November, we had test and go, which at the time, Hannah, led the region, didn't it, in terms of reopening to international travel. Yeah, I mean, so they opened up to, I think it was 63 countries, quarantine free, or I mean, some people argue it's not quarantine free, don't they? Because you've got to spend one night um, until you get your RT-PCR test on arrival, but essentially um, quarantine free, and then you could travel anywhere you wanted to, so long as you're fully vaccinated. Um, So this was, you know, Thailand was leading the way. And you could argue that Thailand really has led the way the whole year. Yes, you know, we, we... I guess pointed out, I was going to say criticised, but let's say pointed out, pointed out their inconsistencies um, in government policies and flip-flopping, like you said, and tourism minister says one thing, TAT says another thing, finance ministry says another thing, but they were brave enough. They did it. And everybody looked at them in ASEAN and everyone was following them. So for a while, everybody else was talking about the sandbox, weren't they? Now that's kind of shifted interestingly and people are talking more about vaccinated travel lanes um, rather than um, test and go. But they were, they were the leaders. Someone had to do it, and they did it. And like you say, this test and go, it has proved to be a lot more successful. They are certainly attracting a lot more inbound visitors. And that's great to see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know quite a few people that have done test and go, and they do say that the, the procedures have become a little bit simpler. It does seem to be working relatively well. Demand is still pretty low. I think we expected that. That's just the nature of the of the global situation right now, and particularly here in Asia Pacific. Um, but that kind of opened the door, kicked the door open, really. To, to, to as you mentioned, there were sixty three countries that are permitted to for vaccinated travellers to go to Thailand. 
Uh, it was looking to expand that, but it then it, it then rolled back on that uh, when Omicron came. Um, but that that opened up two more more expansive reopenings, and one of those was Cambodia, one of those was Philippines. But the first to to really go wide, I would say, was was Cambodia. Yes, and this was a complete shock announcement i think wasn't it it was literally the prime minister on sunday announcing oh we're going to reopen the country uh to everyone from tomorrow <laughs> wasn't it i think i think it took everybody by surprise because a couple of weeks before they had been talking about this sihanouk sandbox idea that they would just open up sihanouk um, province to inbound travelers which was really heavily criticized um, by tourism stakeholders at the time um because you know, it's a very limited place. It was pitting a beach destination in Cambodia with much better beach destinations known um, across the region. But they announced we're, we're going to reopen the country. We don't care what country you're from, so long as you're fully vaccinated. You don't even need to have an RT-PCR test on arrival. Antigen test is fine. Therefore, even eliminating that kind of overnight stay that Singapore and Thailand have got. Um, yeah, it, it kind of blindsided everybody, didn't it? It did. And then it kind of influenced the Philippines as well, because the Philippines had said that it was going to reopen to vaccinated visitors from it was a restricted list. I can't remember the total number of countries. It was about 40. And it was quite an odd list. And then all of a sudden, it did the same thing almost overnight as Cambodia did, and said, we're going to reopen to more than 150 countries. And, and so you were starting to see that, what is the basis of creating these green lists? And they've never made much sense to me, they still don't. But you know, Cambodia didn't even have a list. Philippines said it would have a list of 150 plus countries, which was most of its markets that anybody would ever travel to the Philippines. Um, you still have this restricted 63 country and destination list in Thailand. Um, I, I still, I, I simply don't really understand those. But yeah, I mean, so at this point, Philippines announced this was going to happen a week before Omicron. We'll come to Omicron in a minute. So it looked like Cambodia and the Philippines were actually going to be the most open countries in the region. It's quite interesting, like you said, we'll talk about Omicron again in a minute. But um, Cambodia have almost taken a bit of a stand about that. So um, very briefly, they banned African travellers. And then they've actually taken um, African travellers back off the banned list. And they just remained open. Um, so that, that's kind of a inspirational example, I suppose, to, to the region. Um, but yeah, like you said, we'll talk Omicron in a minute. But let's talk number nine which is the uh, Laos-China Railway reopening, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've been following this right from the beginning, actually. It took five years to construct. It cost about 5.9 billion US dollars. And obviously, the China-Laos Railway is the first part of this ambitious plan to create a pan-China-ASEAN railway system, which would connect with China's own high-speed railway system. The Lao-China Railway runs from the China-Lao border, Boten, down to the capital of Vientiane, goes through some of the Laos's most, most beautiful countryside. Ultimately, that will connect with the southwestern city of Kunming in China. But there are two sides to this, and it, it depends which kind of media that you read, really, because if you look at the travel and tourism media, they really focus on the opportunities that this will bring for Chinese travelers to come into Laos and also for, for, for Laos domestic travelers to travel around their own country uh, without having to fly or without really long highway journeys because the highways in parts of Laos uh, are not great and in some parts there it, it, it's very, very difficult to travel. So there's that side to it, but there's the other side, which I think is probably just as important, probably more important. And that's the fact that Laos is a, Laos is a landlocked country. And this is a part of a way for China really to start trading across land with Southeast Asia. There are more projects in the line 
Thailand has announced that it will develop a high-speed railway system over the next 10 years. And part of that will actually go, the, the second part will uh, connect to the, to the Lao border. So you can start to see that there is this creeping railway network that's going to move through ASEAN, well, mainland Southeast Asia. It will take a long time. This is a long-term project. There's also talk at the moment of perhaps another line between Bangkok and Kuala Lumpur, which really, again, would extend that link even further down through the peninsula. And ultimately, the Malaysia-Kuala Lumpur-Singapore link, that was cancelled earlier this year, but there's talk about that coming back again, probably under pressure from China. So, you know, this is all about trade. It's about infrastructure. It's a little bit about tourism, but it's a very, very complex cocktail. But if you're in Laos and you can travel on this train, people have been in the last week or so. Uh, it looks like the numbers are quite good. Uh, it's a great opportunity to travel around the country. And quite frankly, Hannah, as soon as I've got an opportunity to do it, I, I can't wait to jump aboard. Yeah, it sounds exciting, doesn't it? And you're, you're right, there's been a really good uptake, I think, so far from what I've been reading. It seems like people are really excited um, to ride this high-speed train as well. And it would just be interesting to see how that impacts later on Lao Airlines, whether they continue to operate the same kind of flight frequencies and things. Um, but yeah, a good story, I think, a good development, really, that's, that's happened in Southeast Asia this year. Yeah, and I think the other side to it as well is the fact that although this is talked about mostly in terms of Chinese travelers coming into Laos and, and Laos domestic travel, you know, this will be a tourism attraction. You know, if you're flying in from Malaysia or you're flying in from Singapore, or you're flying in from Thailand in future. You know, you'll want to take a trip on this railway. So although it costs a huge amount of money and probably will never be profitable, I mean, it has created a, a, another reason to visit to visit Laos. Mm. So moving from a pretty positive development to <laughs> the one that's dominating uh, every news headline uh, in December, and that is Omicron. <laughs> Everybody guessed that one as well, right? Um, right now, we still don't really know what the impact of this is going to be kind of in the medium term on tourism. I mean, certainly in the shorter term, we have seen this knee-jerk reaction from governments across the region, um, closing down borders, extending quarantines, postponing reopening plans. We haven't seen so much yet um, additional restrictions on domestic travel, which is good. Um, and we have so far only really seen a few, a few reported, let's say known Omicron cases that have been identified in the region. Um, there's still not been this really locally transmitted spread, you know, in large numbers, um, which is at least something. But it's just this big question mark. It's this big uncertainty that ugh, the tourism industry just doesn't need, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, it is. And it also completely rolled back the way that governments were talking, didn't it? Up until that point, governments were talking about being COVID resilient, about having to live with the virus. Um, as we said earlier, you know, travel was back on the agenda. Singapore was scaling up its vaccinated travel lanes. Thailand was looking to increase uh, the number of flights that could come into Thailand. You know, all these things, Cambodia, Philippines, Malaysia was talking about it would reopen by at the very latest, uh, the 1st of January, 2022. That at the moment seems to have gone a bit cold. So yeah, it, it, it just stopped everything. It put everything on hold. You're absolutely right. Scientifically, we're still really awaiting to see what the, the, the impacts are going to be longer term. Some countries are taking stronger measures. You look at the UK, for example, which you know, has been pretty lax in the way that it's managed COVID-19 so far. You know, that's started to impose new restrictions. Are those valid or is that, are those simple political measures? If, if you listen to uh, scientists talking in South Africa, they are saying that it, transmissibility is much, much faster, much, much quicker. And the immune response from people who are previously 
contracted COVID-19 or those that have had double vaccines is, is a lot lower. So it does have the ability to, to spread much, much quicker. But in terms of the actual overall damage and that it can do in terms of hospitalizations and deaths, I think we're still awaiting for more data. But yeah, it just put everything back on hold. And a period this, like this at the end of the year when we were looking for a bit of growth in terms of bookings for Christmas and New Year, and then into the, the Lunar New Year period. I mean, if you look at the flights to, to the UK, for example, for Malaysia, there were huge numbers of bookings uh, of flights going to, to UK for Christmas. Prices went really, really high. If you look now, there, there are still flights for Christmas because I think there's been a lot of cancellations. So, you know, it has had this impact. And it's going to take time for that to work through the system, I guess. And again, as always, we're going to be led by what governments actually say we can and can't do. Um, so we're kind of back to square one in those terms. Um, it, it does seem that governments uh, have rolled back a little bit on, on going too hard in terms of their restrictions. As you said, that, that there aren't too many restrictions on domestic travel at the moment. But it's just an uncertain picture. And you, you read lots of predictions and, and forecasts for 2022. I think it's really, really hard because we're, we're simply at the mercy of what governments decide to do. Yes. So that's, uh, that's the wait and see, isn't it? That's... 2022, we're going to be talking about Omicron. 2021 was the year of Delta. 2022 is Omicron. But hey, let's. I still have my fingers crossed. I'm still feeling positive that it won't have as big an impact as Delta. Famous last words. So that brings us to the end of our, our top 10 list. We've got four more that, that bubbled just under, which we probably could have mentioned, but we couldn't fit them in. The first one of those, Hannah, is what happened in Myanmar back in February, the, the military coup there, which it's not a travel story, but it's a, it's a depressing legacy for the region of what happened this year. And we'll always remember 2021 for, for what's happened in Myanmar. And that situation just seems to be getting worse there. Yeah, absolutely. Our second one is the Singapore-Hong Kong air travel bubble. Remember that? That was another one that we used to talk about nonstop together with the Phuket sunbox. It was on and off and on and off and on and off. It was an event. It was kind of a non-event. But it still got people thinking about reopening and air travel bubbles within the region. Um, so I think it had an impact although it never happened. Yeah, absolutely. And the word travel bubbles has kind of disappeared from the vernacular mostly, hasn't it? We've, we've moved more into vaccinated travel lanes and quarantine free and that kind of thing. And the travel bubble idea seems to have uh, thankfully disappeared from view a little bit. The third one that we were going to mention is, it's, well, it's another year without Chinese travelers. We know how important the Chinese travel ecosystem, not just the travelers, but the airports, the hotel investors, everything is to, to Southeast Asia. And we've had another year without that. That comes into even stronger focus right now because we would be expecting a big surge of Chinese visitors for Christmas and New Year. And then, of course, during the, the Lunar New Year period. So, yep, it's another year. Uh, we're turning the corner into 2022 with, with no real idea when the Chinese uh, market will reopen. But we would expect it's, it's not going to be any time soon. No. And the last one is that COVID zero is dead almost. So this was really a 2020, 2021 uh, kind of concept. Now, now it's endemicity, isn't it? Everybody's talking about COVID-19 being endemic, although not quite committed to that quite yet. But happy to see the back of uh, COVID zero. Yeah, I mean, we, we said, haven't we, Hannah, many times that Singapore always got lumped into this COVID zero categorization, which I don't think was true. And I don't think it was very fair. Um, the two in, in Asia Pacific that, that got most uh, media coverage, I guess, were New Zealand and Australia. Australia has started to reopen its borders gradually. New Zealand is going to do so from the start of 2022. So, you know, the real purveyors of COVID zero right now are mainland China and Hong Kong. You know, they have very, very much aligned what they're doing with each other. And we don't really have any idea at the moment how long that, that will last for, certainly through this winter, but, you know, it could be 
perhaps for, for much of next year. But here in Southeast Asia, that concept of COVID zero um, has disappeared. Well, what's the outlook for, uh, for Q1 2022 then? What's, what's your prediction, Gary? It's really hard to make predictions, isn't it? I, I mean, I said a few months ago, it really, really depends not on travel demand. It doesn't really matter what the travel industry does. It, we're in the hands of governments. It's what governments decide to do. My feeling is that if Omicron isn't as devastating as perhaps was expected three or four weeks ago, we may see governments start to release the valves slightly. We may see a little bit of movement um, simply because, you know, after two years, I mean, we did say this a year ago, you know, can governments afford um, for this to, to continue like this? They had been talking about living with COVID-19. I know this is a new variant and I know this does place healthcare systems under strain or it could do. But, you know, at some point we have to get a grasp of how we're going to live with COVID-19 and, and perhaps 2022 is the, is the time that we could do that. I don't know. We're going to see more caution for sure, I think. Um, bookings for the Lunar New Year internationally will be very, very low, will be domestically focused, I think. Beyond that, well, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. What, what do you think? Yeah, agreed. I think Q1 2022 is still going to all be about domestic travel. Right? International travel is... Is, is always going to be that concept that governments are still talking about, but we're, we're not going to see real numbers. I think we won't see massive policy changes. Although saying that, you know, some governments can change their mind overnight, like Cambodia did. So hard to predict. I think we're still looking at domestic travel for the next few months. Absolutely. So that brings us to the end of our 2021 In Review special edition of the show. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And don't forget to send us your thoughts and your comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. There's quite a lot to talk about there. Drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show or on Twitter at SEA Travel Show. And meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full 2020 and 2021 back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podchaser, CastBox, Overcast, Podcast Addict, Stitcher and Amazon Music. Just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. So that's a wrap for today and that's almost a wrap for 2021 for the Southeast Asia Travel Show. But we'll be back with a compilation show next week featuring some of the highlights of our many interview shows throughout the year. So we look forward to seeing you then. Thank you.